Coral is weird. I've had Sir David Attenborough explain it, but it's still weird. Coral is a cluster of animals called polyps. Coral is made up of living and dead polyps. Entire islands can form out of coral, and these are called atolls. According to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the bases of atolls can take a minimum of 10,000 years to form. And that's just the beginning. More and more coral pile on over the course of, say, 100,000 years. Eventually, these formations begin to take the shape of islands, with more growing coral forming around them, eventually creating a ring of coral with a lagoon at its center, and that is an atoll. Now picture dozens, no, hundreds of atolls growing up from beneath the sea into island formations, and imagine the process taking place over tens of millions of years, and you'll have at least some idea of what it took to form the Maldives. The geography of the Maldives needs to be appreciated. We're talking about 1,126 coral islands spread over 90,000 square kilometers, only about 20,000 square kilometers larger than New Brunswick. It sits right on the equator and 1,034 kilometers southwest of Sri Lanka. The average elevation in the Maldives is 1.5 meters above sea level. The highest point in the atolls? Only 2.4 meters above sea level. And that's where we find our guest, exploring the atolls and islands in the lowest country in the world on the expats. Welcome to the Expats. I'm your host, Adam Rosenhart, based out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Lara Hill adapted rather well to island life. She lived for 10 months on the world's largest atoll before returning to Canada. But before we dive into Lara's experiences, we have to make sure we're pronouncing it correctly. Is it Maldives or the Maldives? It depends on the context. Uh, I've seen it both ways. Yeah. So when you're referring to it like you worked in Maldives... It's okay to say you worked in Maldives or the Maldives. It's more common to say the Maldives. Okay, okay. And um, what is it that brought you there in the first place? Let's see how far back would I wind the tale. Um, I'd always wanted to work for the UN. That's kind of been a career goal of mine. And this opportunity came up through an organization, a partnering organization that I used to work for uh, years prior, actually. So this opportunity came up and uh, the position kind of fit my interests and needs um, as far as kind of growing my career in a direction that interested me. So I applied for it uh, and got it. It was a six-month contract to begin with. Yeah. And I ended up getting two subsequent contracts afterward, uh, which was great. And the last one actually just wrapped up. Finally, it was finalized uh, last week. The final document went in. Oh, Okay. (laughs) So, so you're now back on Canadian soil. I am. I'm in Canada. I'm not sure for how long or what's next. Um, I've kind of lined myself up to do contract work of this nature. Yeah. Um, so I've been applying for different opportunities and positions. It would be nice to have something a little bit more stable and long-term. My relationship status has changed. Um, so 
the original plan was to take shorter contracts and be based where my partner was. Uh, so now I'm looking for something a little more stable. So it would be nice to get at least six-month contracts instead of the little 30-day contracts that are sometimes offered by the UN. Um, and I've also applied for a doctorate and just got accepted. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so that will commence in February, and I'll be doing that while I work. So going back to your, your time uh, in the Maldives, how long were you there for in total? Uh, total, I guess it was only 10 months, 10 or 11 months. Yeah. And what yeah. was what was life like there? I mean, because I think of it's it's an island nation or an atoll or whatever. Uh, what? How different is it from from life in Canada? Well, I would say night and day. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're right. It is an island nation. People inhabit 192 of approximately 1,200 islands that make up the country. Wow. It's a tiny country. The population is under under 500,000 was the last census. And a lot of those numbers are made up of migrant workers. So people coming from Nepal, working in the construction areas, um, and smaller numbers of expats working in the tourism industry, which of course is pretty big there. Yeah, I assume that would be their primary industry. It is, it is. So what's interesting about that dynamic uh, is for the longest time, the tourism industry was kept very separate from regular Maldivian life. It was completely isolated from one another. And part of that reason is because it's a, it's an Islamic society um, and it runs under strict Sharia law. So in order to have a tourism industry where people are coming from Western nations and having wanting to appeal to those uh, demographics, you have to have spaces and places where people can wear bikinis and drink alcohol, that kind of thing. So, the tourism industry and regular Maldivian living is very, very separated. So that was kind of a fascinating dynamic to be within because I worked in the local community. I worked in the capital city, which is called Male, which is where oh, almost a third of the population of the entire country lives in this little wall-to-wall concrete jungle. Wow. Um, I actually lived on a, on a satellite island, so I rode a boat to work every day to commute, um, it was a bit more affordable and more relaxing and spacious. It's a really densely populated place. Yeah. But one thing that kind of struck me as interesting as far as what I could uh, find a bit of a metaphor for what it's like living in Canada. I grew up in rural Canada, in the prairies actually, and that in itself had an isolating component to it, uh, being landlocked, being far from the next community. You had to travel great distances to get from one place to another you're impeded by weather sometimes in the winter so there were some interesting parallels that I could draw um, to how spread out we are and how much of an effort uh, it is to get from one place to another yeah uh, that was kind of fascinating yeah in in the capital city I mean if it's if everything's so densely packed together how do Maldivians get around do they do they bike do they walk within Mali which is, I think it's only about three kilometers long. There's so many motorbikes and mopeds on the streets. Of it's course. actually a hazard. Oh, no. Uh, it's, it's difficult to walk. The sidewalks aren't conducive to pedestrians. They're trying to push for more of a bicycle culture, but there's a lot of little motor vehicles whipping in and around these teeny tiny little corridor streets, some of them cobblestone-like. Um, 
which is also difficult when there's sea surges. Sometimes I was walking to work in ankle-deep water. Really? And there's a lot of cars, which is astonishing. I don't know. I wouldn't want to be in a car there. It would be a nightmare. You'd just be sitting in traffic. It's very small. There's only a few main veins of like regular streets. Yeah. It's always really densely packed and motorbikes are weaving in and out and people are walking and it's kind of chaotic. <laughs> it sounds I hit insane. by a bike once. Like, oh, really? So it's dangerous. You have to be really mindful. I think there's only two street lights. <laughs> like actually? Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's pretty wild. It's a heartbeat you have to get used to. But then you go to some of the smaller islands. I did travel quite a bit, part of it for my work and also in my free time just to explore and enjoy it while I was there. But some of the islands don't have any vehicles. They're very, very small. There's bicycles, maybe some mopeds. But primarily people are relying on the ocean. Oh, so yeah. boats, boats to get around and transport things and to access services. A lot of people come from the outer islands to the main island, Mali. Um, from further atolls, it's difficult. So you have to fly. It's very expensive. So there's quite a few little airports. So that, that aspect of getting around is challenging. It sounds like it. I actually got trapped on an island um, on New Year's. I went a day ahead um, of one of my colleagues who was going to join me for the New Year holiday. And we had to cross uh, open water and a toll, uh, just to explain the, like the geography. And a toll tends to be a ring of islands. Mm -hmm. So within that ring, crossing the water within is calmer waters. But if you're going to cross from one ring to another, you're going through open sea. And at different times of the year, the sea can get pretty rough. So I was lucky. I Well, I don't know if lucky, but I got to this island in another atoll. And then the seas changed so drastically that there was no boat traffic going. Oh and there was no airplane or airline that would go to the island where I was. It was very, very small. So my friend never made it. So I ended up getting stuck there because the sea was so bad. I had to miss work <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> on the way back. But I mean, that's life there. So I sent a message to my boss and she said, yeah, well, all right, go snorkeling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. So there's, there's something that's interesting. I mean, the, uh, the recreational opportunities in an island nation must be dramatically different from the, from the life you're used to on the prairies. Did you, did you get to snorkel very often? All the time, <laughs> all the time. My apartment was right on the water. Yeah. So if I got home early enough, of course, it's right on the equator. The country straddles the equator, actually. So the sun goes down fairly early. It's dark by six. But if I was lucky enough to get home early enough, I'd end my day with a little snorkel just to kind of chill, relax. And the water is like a bath water all year long. Oh, so wow. it's always warm. It's really nice. But uh, what was exciting for me, um, something I never thought I would do, uh, was I learned to scuba dive when I got my open water certification. So that's really the world that you must see if you are ever privileged to go to the Maldives is the underwater world. It is such a rich, diverse marine life, yeah. some of the best diving in the world. So I lived and saw under the sea so much. It just, it's actually really brings a little tear to my eye how fascinating and rich that experience was for me. Yeah. And scary every time and seeing sharks. It's just, oh, it was really, really incredible. Now, now these, the Maldives are like atolls. So they're, they're coral islands, correct? That's right. Now that must mean you get just an incredible diversity of marine life when you're diving. 
Absolutely. You can't not see something when you dive. Yeah. And is is the coral in good shape? Is it or is it suffering some of the same ecological damage that uh, the Great Barrier Reef is? It's absolutely suffering. Um, one of the issues, it's called coral bleaching. Um, you may have heard that term before, but part of it has to do with climate change and changing water temperatures. That's having a huge effect. And coral bleaching is actually kind of like when it dies um, and it all turns white. And that, of course, affects all of the marine life around it that depend on it as well. So different kinds of fish who I'm not an expert in this area at all. This is just a little bit of what I learned. Fish that rely on the coral and seagrasses, uh, they're having to change their habitats and patterns as well. So that's also having an impact on the Maldives' second most important industry, which is fishing. Yeah. Um, and people who rely on it for a subsistence, it's, it's changing that dynamic as well. So it's, it's kind of a fragile environment in that respect, for sure. And climate change is the, the biggest impending doom to that nation. That's what they're really focused on is how to adapt and ready themselves for those changes that are continuing. So, so you're there for, say, 10-ish months. Uh, are there a lot of other Canadians that are doing work in the Maldives? There are a few. Uh, most of them are pilots. Oh. Um, when I was there, I think there were about 11 of us registered, and I met a couple. <laughs> One, two, I met two teachers, which was kind of interesting. One woman who'd been there for years, and she was actually from the prairies as well, and we knew some of the same people. That's how it goes, right? Wow, small world. Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan folk, we find each other everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, some teachers and pilots is, is the primary and, and, uh, tourism industry, but I didn't meet anyone in the tourism industry. Okay. People, it's harder to get to the resorts. Um, I went to a few resorts, but most of it was out of my financial reach. How are Canadians regarded by people of the Maldives? Um, highly. One fun part uh, that I enjoyed, I was there during the election time. Um, so Maldivians, at least in the circles that I went, are very well-read, highly educated, worldly people. Uh, most of my colleagues were uh, educated all over the world, uh, looking for better education opportunities. So a lot were educated in the West and pay attention to international politics. Um, so everyone was very intrigued um, by Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> and I was approached to often, oh, what do you think? How is, how is he going to manage your country? And are you excited? And oh, my God, look at his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, you know, the Trudeau mania made it as far as these tiny little islands. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but I think overall, um, people are very intrigued, um, especially the younger generation uh, with Canada's um, appearance of a welcoming multicultural society. Yeah. That's very appealing. Um, Maldives had started moving toward um, a more open democratic society in their previous election, uh, but now under their current leadership, it's moving toward a bit more of a, I have to be careful what I say, um, a much more stricter, more conservative form of Islam there's some issues with human rights. So a lot of younger people are really distraught and they look at places like Canada and say, oh, you know, if only. Is it is it tough for young Maldivians to, to leave? Like I imagine 
the the socioeconomic status of a lot of people there isn't nearly the same as what we have here in Canada. That's correct. Um, especially people in the farther remote, um, rural, I would say, islands. It's it's harder for them uh, to get out. Uh, but I'm not sure if they have uh, funding opportunities or how it works. But a lot of my colleagues and circles uh, that I went in had the opportunity to go overseas to study um, and made it a priority. Um, they are not a low-income country. They're actually a middle-income country. Stat, uh, that's their classification now. Yeah. Um, but they're still, I mean, a lot of people fall through those gaps, right? When you measure a country by GDP, you're looking at averages. So all of the really poor people are kind of out of that mix. So in the smaller communities, I think education opportunities are harder to get, especially quality opportunities. Um, when you like consider an island that has 192 inhabitants, the quality of education is going to be a little thinner. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> a lot try to get to the center, to Mali, for at least their high school years. They'll live with other family members. People are very um, willing and wanting to gain education and foreign education. Now, you were there for, for almost a year. Was there anything that you really missed about Canada while you were away, or were you just too enthralled with this new environment? Um, well, I've been lucky and I've had the privilege to live overseas a number of times. So I'm kind of, I'm used to that adjustment and 10 months isn't very long, uh, to start missing things. Um, I would say I miss, uh, the cool, fresh air, yeah. <laughs> simple things, right? Yeah. Um, but primarily my people, you miss your people, but yeah, definitely our cool, fresh air variety. I, I'm a foodie. But the variety of food and options that we have is scary astronomical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a big one that I don't think uh, has ever come up, it's even the fresh air thing. I mean, uh, I, I tend to think that, I mean, I live in a city, so I, I, I assume that the air quality here is probably a little bit worse than uh, a place like, like Maldives. But uh, that's really interesting. Okay. I would say the air quality was good, but the humidity is so high. Right. So you don't get that crisp air like the air we're getting now for the fall air. There's there's nothing like that air. Um, but I, I'll just make a little digression. Um, I lived in Hong Kong for a period of time, and the air quality there is so important. It's it's measured and you get it in your daily news. What's the air index today? Because it's so bad. Mm-hmm. And when I came back from living there for a period of time, I was literally drinking the air when I came out of. Vancouver airport and a cousin that picked me up said what like you're we're in the parkade there's exhaust (laughs) (laughs) so you have no idea like you can actually taste the quality of the air here we're so lucky what's next for you I mean you're looking for something more stable more long term do you think international travel is still in the cards always yeah I have the bug (laughs) yeah it's under my skin started when I was 19 I guess it's always been a big part of my life um, as, a, as an artist, um, as a traveler, as someone who segued into international development work. I think it'll always be a part of my life, professional and personal capacities. But what's next? Um, as I said, I, I was accepted to this doctorate program, so there'll be a research component to that that will take me back overseas, so I know that'll be coming. Um, I've just interviewed for a position uh, based in New York 
I have a few applications out in other countries, one in Myanmar. So it's just, it's a matter of where I'm lucky enough to get my next opportunity and hope that I can line things up uh, with my uh, post-secondary pursuits. It'd be ideal for the place that I'm working and the research that I'm doing to have some components that cross over so that it may be of benefit. Um, so that's kind of the hope is that I can carve out something uh, in that regard. But the, yeah, the next contract, it would be nice to have something a little longer, but it's a really tough market. It's very competitive. Beggars can't be choosers. So <laughs> yeah, I'm just casting my net, um, casting, casting, and I'll see what comes up. I'm very, very fortunate. Um, my mom has opened her, her home to me. And she said, take your time, find the right fit. Don't just take anything for the sake of a job, right? Yeah. I've invested so much and spent so much time trying to build my career in this direction. So I just have to be patient and and hope for the best. Definitely. And what advice would you give to um, other Canadians who are perhaps seeking their first expat's experience? Well, uh, there's a number of different ways you can go about it. I always recommend starting out as a volunteer, if you can, just to get your feet wet, because it is such a competitive market. Um, Those entry-level jobs always already ask for people with overseas experience. That's the the hard part. So I, I I always suggest that people try on some kind of volunteer experience or teaching English abroad, first of all, to see if you're cut out for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an easy lifestyle. Um, you're always living out of suitcases. There's not a lot of stability. You're constantly culturally adjusting. I mean, it's a rich adventure, but there's a lot of challenge that comes with that. And and until you actually go experience a little bit of it, you don't know if that's uh, going to be your comfort zone or not. So I recommend a volunteer component or teaching overseas, something like that. Mm-hmm. Or um, if you have um, undertaken a certain type of study uh, that is conducive to international work, like if you're an environmental scientist or an international development graduate, there's a lot of different programs that you can take on an internship. Um, that's a good way as well to get your feet wet. And to start gaining international experience um, that has a legitimate framework around it uh, that looks good on your CV. Um, There's quite a few programs out there that are available like that. A lot of them, you end up having to fundraise and pay for it a lot, a lot of it yourself. But it's it's worth it uh, to get your foot in the door, just as I said, because it's so competitive. Volunteering and getting your foot in the door. Great advice from Lara Hill, who's back in Canada after a 10-month stint in the Maldives. And that concludes this episode of The Expats. If there are any expats you think I should be speaking with, have them email me at info at expatspodcast.ca or send me an email yourself and let's keep building this global network of Canadians living abroad. I've been your host, Adam Rosenhart, and if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to The Expats on the iTunes Music Store, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. And make sure you leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch up again in a couple of weeks.